Thanks, Tim. Our Bible reading today is from Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a tree. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and people of every peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, the enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, the chief of the magicians, I know that the, dream, that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you, here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. It led, its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was the Holy One, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. And let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The Holy Ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Daniel interprets the dream. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, 
My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversities, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky visible to the, old, to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, please be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. The dream is fulfilled. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof by the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that your Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him to live forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases. With the powers of the heaven and the peoples of the earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers 
and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right in all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all your gifts you give us. We thank you most of all for the gift of Jesus and everything that that means for us. Father, we come here today, each of us, Lord, some of us uh, come having a really, having had a really good week and are thankful for that. And we just take the opportunity to thank you for that. We uh, receive that and um, receive it thankfully, knowing that all good things are from your hand. Lord, others of us, though, come having had a really troubled week on a whole number of different levels. Uh, some of us feel the brokenness of our lives and of this world keenly. Uh, Lord, some of us are stuck in sin. Uh, some of us, Father, are confused and questioning. Father, wherever we're at today, we pray that your spirit might minister deeply to us. Please, particularly today, Lord, we confess the sin of pride and we pray for the gracious work of your spirit to humble us before you so that we might have life and joy and real, lasting, eternal peace in the knowledge of your great kingdom. And Father, we pray that for the glory of your name and through the precious name of Jesus who brings us forgiveness and new life and through whom we can call you our Father. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Well, friends, uh, it is good to see you all. Welcome again. My name is Duncan, if we haven't met. Um, we're uh, here at Trinity South Coast. Our habit is to... Um, read through books of the Bible together so that we might get a sense of uh, not just particular things that God is saying to us through his word, but the whole kind of spread of what he reveals to us. And uh, one of the outcomes of that is that we read chapters of the Bible that uh, can present some difficult things for us and maybe things that we might not see otherwise or hear otherwise. Uh, We're travelling through this book of Daniel uh, and the the book as a whole is all about how God's people... How people who belong to God first and foremost, how people who are part of God's kingdom, live in this situation of exile. We looked at that a few right when we started this idea of exile. That the Jewish people had been taken away from their home; they were you know, under a foreign king. And this book of Daniel is all about how do, how do you live in, in this tension between these two kingdoms for people who belong under God's kingship but also live in the kingdoms of this world. And uh, you have these moments in Daniel where you get these kind of friction points between those two kingdoms. And we've seen them as we've gone along. Right in chapter 1, there was this friction point where Daniel and his friends refused to eat the food that um, uh, they were uh, instructed to eat. And and then chapter 2, there's um, uh, this uh, image of the... Um, the statue, and we saw that how that worked out. Ch- uh, uh, ch- last week, or two, three weeks ago now, actually, because we've had a couple of weeks off, we saw uh, that incredible story of Daniel's three friends being thrown into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Well, it's the same here in chapter 4, in a way, this tension, uh, this tension between what it looks like to belong to God's kingdom... Have that as your core, what's lying at your centre, but also to live in the kingdoms of this world, and to live in exile. 
Um, the heart of what is going on here is, I think, incredibly important and relevant for us today. Um, the heart of Babylon's king. Uh, Babylon's king is brought low. We just re- heard the story. And it's the same, but what was kind of driving him beforehand is the same message that our culture tells us, right? Um, I'll, I'll say these, these lyrics out. I won't sing it because otherwise it will be in your head all day. Um, this is a very popular song. If you, that is if you know the song and you have maybe kids or grandkids. Uh, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. I am one with the wind. And it goes on. Uh, it is. Some people are nodding their heads. It's from the movie Frozen. This is a smash hit a few years ago. And if you've got kids around the movie watching age, you might have seen it. Um, now, there's lots that's good about that. Okay, I don't want to just have a, a, a movie bashing session, but it's kind of the, it's a mirror of our culture. Um, in a way, I, I think kids' movies, popular kids' movies, um, they become a kind of mirror of things that are accepted in our culture and our culture's deep kind of dreams and ambitions. And it's a great example of this assumption about life that our world holds onto that basically says that each individual... Each individual creates your own meaning and purpose. You are the Lord of your life. Uh, You are the master of your own destiny and there's nothing higher on the throne of your heart than you. (laughs) Than you. Well, chapter 4, what we're going to see today as we read through this chapter uh, is that this message that really is deeply ingrained in our culture, we're going to see a very stark contrast. And we're going to hopefully see how that is as wonderful and good news. Um, it'll give you something that the gospel of our culture cannot, which ends up just making you anxious. And, you know, we, can, we can't bear the weight of being the masters of our own souls, actually. Um, this, what we're going to see today, offers us something utterly unique that the world cannot give. All right. We're going to look at chapter, this chapter in a second, but just to help us, uh, what I want to do is very quickly, if we can skim through some slides that are coming up. Um, the, the chapters 2 to 7 in Daniel, this might be a bit technical, but it's going somewhere, so bear with it. Um, chapter 1 is like an introduction to the book. Chapters 2 through to 7 are kind of like a bit of a unit, and if you see them like that, you can see some really interesting parallels going on. Uh, you see up there, chapter 2 and 7 are all about, well, chapter 2 is the dream of four kingdoms and the kingdom of God, and you get the same in chapter 7, we'll get to that in a few weeks. Now uh, then in chapter 3, um, you get God's people rescued from the furnace, and um, in chapter 6, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see Daniel is rescued from the lion's den, that great famous story. But then you get these two middle chapters in this kind of chunk, 4 and 5, they're all about God's power, well this one, God's power over uh, Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar, and then next week we're going to look at God's power over Babylon's king, Belshazzar. Not too important that you kind of get all the details there, but what, what I wanted to pick out is the next slide, if we can go to that, if you look at just these two chapters, Daniel the 4 and 5, they kind of go together and they, they tie together by this theme, this repeated phrase that goes through both chapter 4 and you hear it in chapter 5 as well. Uh, that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone He wishes. 
The Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, sets over them anyone he wishes. So we're going to kind of take these two chapters together. And in a way, next week is we're going to build on this week. Um, what we're going to do next week is reflect on kind of the biggest picture of this, the reality of, on a global scale, the sovereign power of God over the kingdoms of this world, um, of the structures of authority that are on this earth. And what we're going to do this week, though, is we're going to see how this reality of God's sovereign power over the kingdoms of the world, we're going to see how that doesn't just relate to big um, global kingdoms that are going on. We're going to see how it relates to one man, uh, individuals, to this one king. The whole chapter is a letter written by this one king, the great king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. You pick that up as we, at the start of the chapter, um, as we read it through, maybe you pick that up. It's actually this strange kind of thing where um, there's a letter from Nebuchadnezzar that's inserted into this book. The whole chapter's from Nebuchadnezzar. And he says at the start, it's for everyone. He, he, he gives this proclamation, this decree for the whole world. Peoples of every language, all who live on the earth. Uh, and we're, we're, it's kind of like Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. We're meant to see this huge turnaround in Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what we're going to go on to see Nebuchadnezzar say, you could not imagine him saying at the start of the book. You could not imagine Nebuchadnezzar saying this. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, if you know anything of the story of what's happened, this guy has brutally um, murdered and mercilessly created his own empire. He has forced nations into subjection, including this one little backwater nation of Israel. We're told in 2 Kings 25 that he had taken the king of Israel, uh, killed all his sons in front of him, put out his eyes... Uh, put shackles on him and took him to Babylon. That's the kind of character of the guy we're dealing with, right? This is how he's treated the Israelites and their king. Uh, he has, we've seen along the way, he has been surprised along the way at the, the God of these Israelite exiles and this incredible kind of power he seems to have. Uh, but back in chapter 2, as we said, we saw when Daniel interprets the dream of the statue, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel in chapter 2, Surely your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. Uh, surely your God. Uh, and then in chapter 3, he kind of forgets about this, and you get what we looked at last time, this more spectacular encounter with the fiery furnace. God saves his people out of that. You can go back and review that if you like. But Nebuchadnezzar, as, as says at the end, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. So he's, he's impressed, right? He's impressed by this God of the Jewish exiles. But do you notice what, what was sort of highlighted as he went through? It's always their God. His God. The God of Daniel. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's impressed. He's kind of intrigued. But ultimately, this God is not relevant to him. So we're meant to pick up our ears um, when we hear what Nebuchadnezzar says in 4 verse 2. This declaring to the world. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. What a 
stunning turnaround, the transformation in this guy. Something has happened to make him see that this God is not just kind of one impressive God of these Jewish exiles, but the Most High God. And by the end of the chapter, the King of Heaven, the only true God, who Nebuchadnezzar testifies, has done great things for me. It's getting personal for, for old Nebuchadnezzar. Well, the rest of the chapter tells how this has happened, right? Uh, it tells how it is that this transformation has occurred in Nebuchadnezzar. But what I just wanted to, what I want, I want to point out here at the start is, uh, did you, can you kind of get a, a, a sense for the vibe, or the, the, uh, the kind of attitude that Nebuchadnezzar has? He's got to the end of this result, and he's happy about it. He's awed by it. It is his pleasure to tell the world about God and what he's done, about these incredible things he's done for him. Everything that happens to Nebuchadnezzar through this story, okay? Just keep this in mind as we go through. Everything that happens to Nebuchadnezzar through this story, he looks back in the end and says, yes, these were great things that the Most High God has done for me. That's significant, I think, as we go through, as we'll see. Well, he tells his story as he goes on his testimony. There he is in his palace. He's uh, the centre of his glory and his wealth. He's contented and prosperous. You, you read in verse 4. He's created this incredible empire. He has, uh, this guy has unbelievable power. They reckon he's one of a handful of people in the whole history of the world who's had this sort of power. Incredible power. Um, he's the absolute sovereign over his kingdom. Uh, he didn't have to worry about re-elections. Uh, and he's defeated his enemies. He's, he's looking, uh, kind of getting to the end of his reign, he's looking back, he, he's done it all. And yet, in verse 5, he can't control his dreams. And God breaks through. He has this dream that leaves him in a cold sweat and terrified. The, one of the most powerful people who has ever lived. And he wakes up. Absolutely terrified. Uh, so just, just like in chapter 2, he summons his wise men. If you're with, with us in chapter 2, you'll know Nebuchadnezzar summoned his wise men to tell him about his dream he had. Except back then he wanted them to tell, them, tell him what the dream was and then its interpretation. But now he kind of lets them off the hook a little bit and he fills them in with what the dream is. Uh, but they still can't interpret it. And then in verse 8, Daniel comes along. He's in a different league to these other wise men that he, it's called the chief of the magicians and he gets told the dream and in it he sees this tree this tree, this enormous tree from verse 11 it's so large that its top touches the sky and if you know something of the story of the Old Testament, maybe that's ringing some bells for you it's a reminder of another tall thing in where Babylon was back in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel built to reach the heavens so that people could make a name for themselves. But anyway, this tree is huge. It dominates, we're told, it dominates the whole earth. Everyone can see it. But it also, it's beautiful. It's abundant. It provides food and shelter and um, beauty for the food and animals and the birds. And all of a sudden, in verse 13, a holy angel from heaven comes and calls out in a loud voice, cut it down, strip its branches, scatter its fruit, take away everything that's impressive about it. 
take away its height, take away its reputation, take away its strength, take away its fruitfulness. Don't destroy it completely. Leave a stump in the ground, but take away every single thing that it could cling to to say it had some kind of significance. Take away it all. And then in the, in the middle of verse 15, we're meant to see that this tree represents a person. Uh, and it goes on, Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals. Let him, let him become like an animal till seven times pass by. We're not entirely sure what that means, but probably seven seasons. Um, about a year and a half. Not too important. But what is important comes in verse 17. This judgment falls on this tree, and it's not just a random judgment. It has a purpose. So that the living may know, and here it is, that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest people. Okay, so Daniel's standing there, right? You can picture him, he's just heard this dream being told to him. And you can, you can kind of see him getting paler and paler as the dream goes on, right? Paler and, uh, he knows what the dream means. I actually, to be honest, I wonder whether the wise men who were asked before, whether they actually really did know what it was. Because it's not that difficult to interpret, I think. Um, perhaps it's so obvious what it means that the reason the wise men didn't answer is because they couldn't think of it some other explanation than what it does actually mean for this great king. But the king trusts Daniel and he says, don't let it alarm you. The king says to Daniel, tell it straight. Tell me it's straight. And Daniel responds. See, notice how Daniel responds. He has this wonderful mixture of compassion and courage, this mixture of grace and truth in what he says to Nebuchadnezzar. He knows that this dream is a word of warning and of judgment against this king. And yet Daniel doesn't respond, he doesn't respond with a kind of glee at this news of judgment on this king. Remember again who Nebuchadnezzar is, this guy, the merciless conqueror of Daniel's people, who had done so many wicked things. But even so, Daniel responds in verse 19, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies... And it's meaning to your adversaries. He doesn't take delight in this message of judgment. But he doesn't shirk from it either. He doesn't shirk from it either. He tells the king what probably the king already knows, but he needs to hear someone else tell him. He tells the king in verse 22, Your majesty, you are that tree. All this is going to happen to you until, verse 25, until you acknowledge that the most, here it is again, the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone He wishes. There is a note of hope, if you keep reading verse 26. Your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. But the main thing here is God's judgment on this pagan king who in his pride has put himself in God's place. And Daniel doesn't leave it there, though. I think this is really interesting and perhaps unexpected, certainly important. Uh, God, didn't, going on here, God didn't need to give this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. 
He didn't need to warn this king of what was coming. He could have just let his judgment come on him at any moment. That would have been totally just, totally fair. Uh, But God does give this dream, and Daniel knows it's a warning and a call to repentance for this great king. A call to hear it and turn around to humble his heart before God and to show that by changing his life in concrete ways. So Daniel urges the king in verse 27, Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Two things that this king would have had great trouble doing. It may be that that then your prosperity will continue. Perhaps perhaps God will relent and not bring this on you. Heed his warning. Friends, this is just one story that taps into the bigger story of humanity's pride and sin against God and that sits under his judgment. God doesn't owe us any warning. He could send his judgments without us. But in his mercy, he gives it to us. He does warn us in his words. And that warning is meant to lead us to repentance. To recognise the reality of our sin, of our, our own pride before God. To turn away from that and to turn to God, casting ourselves on his mercy. More on that in a, in a, in a little bit. Uh, But it it did take more than just a warning for Nebuchadnezzar to get the message. He didn't repent. As you read on verse 29, it's a year later, just long enough perhaps for the memory to fade. And Nebuchadnezzar's standing on the roof of his palace. Um, He's on high, right? The the King Almighty on high. Here's a picture of um, like an artist's representation of the great hanging gardens of Babylon, one one of the wonders of the ancient world. Um, here's Nebuchadnezzar looking down at this great wonder, looking down at hundreds of thousands of people going about their business under his rule. And in his pride and his power, he says in verse 30, Is this not the great Babylon I have built, says the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? There's nothing higher than this guy. There's no voice that's more powerful than his. And so you, perhaps you can imagine his shock when there is a voice that comes not just from a building that's a bit higher, but comes from heaven. Even Nebuchadnezzar, everything Nebuchadnezzar was warned about is going to happen, the voice says, and just... Just like that, right? He's a king at the height of his power. And just like that, it all happens. His royal authority is taken from him and he becomes the absolute opposite. He was standing tall, chest out, chin out. And he ends up on the ground like a wild animal, eating the grass, everything stripped away from him. He becomes the absolute opposite of what he was. And he's hardly human. He kind of actually becomes like an animal. He's brought utterly low. I wonder, there's a, oh, I've used this quote before, but it's so relevant, I'll use it again. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. I wonder if he had this story in mind when he wrote this. 
in a great little book called Mere Christianity. Uh, he said, I can't remember if I have the slide in. If not, don't worry, just listen. Uh, he, he writes this, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Well, Nebuchadnezzar has no possibility of love or contentment or common sense. He's gone mad. His pride has led him there. And then in verse 34, there's this great reversal. Nebuchadnezzar has spent his whole life looking down Right? He spent his whole life looking down. It all came to its peak on the roof of his palace as he looked down on everything that he had built. All that he had achieved. But now in verse 34 he writes, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. And my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified Him who lives forever. He has had this personal encounter with the sovereign power of the one true God. In verse 35 he goes on, All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? You can't twist God's arm. You can't hold Him hostage. You can't speak back to Him. You see what it does for Nebuchadnezzar, this great reversal. And as he goes on, you see what this does for him. Before, in his pride, he considered everything his achievement. Everything about his life was something that he had earned, he had done, and he deserved it. It was owed to him. But then in verse 36, uh, he now sees life as a gift. Something that, something that he doesn't deserve. At the same time that my, san, uh, at my, uh, that my sanity not was earned, not that I crawled out of my misery and reclaimed my great power, my sanity was restored by the grace of God. My, at the same time as that happened, my honour and splendour were returned. Not my honour and splendour, I... I got back and reclaimed them. They were returned. He sees life now, not as an achievement that reflects on his glory, but as a gift. As a gift. And so he finishes with this confession of praise in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Oh, and this, is, it's a, this is a story, a true story of one man's power and pride and what it took to humble him. When he was on the grass, he wouldn't have been thankful for it. 
right? He wouldn't have been thankful for it when he was insane on the grass in the middle of it all. But it drove him to recognise the depths of his pride, the, the foolishness of his pride, the wickedness of his pride. That's a particular type of pride on view here. Yeah, it's one of those words that can get used in different ways. There's, you know, there's the kind of satisfaction that you have in someone you love. I'm, I'm proud of my kids. Um, that's not. I think that's not what I'm, what's on view here. This is a kind of inward-focused pride. And at its heart, this pride looks at your life and says, "It's mine. I did it. It's my achievement. It stands on the palace of your kingdom." And says, is this not great Babylon I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? And do you see what that means? Um, If that is your view of your life, any good things that are in your life are there because you've earned them. And you ought to have them. That you deserve them. You're entitled to them. And if you think you're a fairly decent person, then, then any bad things in your life are unfair you'll have a sense that you are owed something better. Or you might see that those bad things and despair at them, but not despair in a repentant way, but in a proud way. There is a kind of prideful despair as well that says my life is falling apart and it's all my fault because of what I've done and I've just got to be better. I've just got to do this. Even that looks more humble, but it still puts you at the centre. Nebuchadnezzar was brought to his senses and he realised that God was at the centre, not him. And it especially shaped the way in which he saw his power. As I said, next week we're going to think about big structures of human authority and power and how they relate to God's power over them. But each of us in our own way have our own personal kingdoms, don't we? Our own selves over which we can say, it's mine. Nebuchadnezzar was brought low so that he would finally acknowledge that his life was not his own, but God's. And any power he had, anything he had, any good thing he had, was a gift from the King of Heaven. If you have that perspective, it's going to change the way you see the world. It will give you a sense of peace and wonder and thankfulness for all God has given you and when things go badly it will stop you from a kind of raging against it out of a sense of entitlement or it will stop you from a a self-focused despair you'll be able to say with Nebuchadnezzar now I in any circumstance now I praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything He does is right and all His ways are just. My friends, how can you say that? In all of your pride, how, how can you say that? You can say that because of what God has done to forgive and give new life to proud rebels like you and me. See, Nebuchadnezzar had a great reversal, right? He was great. He was brought low and then God graciously gave him, put him back where he was. It wasn't that long after these events that there was an infinitely greater reversal 
The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Philippians 2. Jesus Christ, in very nature God. Just think about that for a second. God the Son, of one being with the Most High Father, eternally begotten. Jesus Christ, in very nature God. Puts Nebuchadnezzar to shame, right? The most powerful person, perhaps the most powerful person who's ever lived. Nothing compared to Jesus Christ. But can you see what happens in the wonderful good news that we have in the Gospel? Jesus doesn't hold on to his power. He wasn't forced low. He, he wasn't forced down. He made himself low. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The gospel of Jesus sees your pride, your fencing off of the walls of your life, and saying over the mine, it does see that and it does call you to repent of it. But it calls you to do that only after seeing what Jesus himself has done for you. This greatest one, the greatest name in heaven, the greatest name on earth, the greatest name will ever be in all the universe, he's the first and the last. He'll always be the same. Jesus, Jesus, he's the greatest name. This greatest one. He gave himself up for you. He humbled himself in your place. So now if you trust him, you are united to him, you can receive not just this life, but new life as a gift. Reconciled to God, at peace with him, having a hope of eternal life, free from suffering and evil. We can have confidence Not the kind of confidence in ourselves, but confidence in this great servant king who shows that at the heart of the universe, at the heart of this most high God, is self-giving, holy love for his people. And we can do that, we can have that kind of confidence because of what Paul writes next, this greater reversal. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. (sighs) Friends, Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar had reality. had, Had an encounter with reality. With God's reality. With truth. To live in defiance against that was foolishness. To recognize it, to repent of his pride, to cast himself on God's mercy. That was sanity. It's the most reasonable thing he could do. The good news of Jesus shows us this same reality in in high definition, in its fullness and its completeness. It proclaims the greatness of God and the full depths of his mercy towards you in Jesus. It does warn you of God's coming judgment, but it holds out the free gift of complete forgiveness and new life with God. And that is a gift that's held out to you. 
if you will repent and cast yourselves on his never-ending mercy. Let's pray together for this. Our great God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks so powerfully of your greatness and majesty. Lord, we pray that we'll never forget that. We thank you, Father, that we approach you as our Father because of Jesus. But, Lord, we pray that we'll never forget the glory of your holy name and what it meant for you to bring us into that position of your children. We thank you for the greater reversal that Jesus, the greatest one, of one being with you, eternally existing with you, our Father, God the Son, we praise you that he gave up himself, made himself humble for us, and that because you have exalted him to the highest place, and that because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his lordship, we can have confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. We can turn away from our pride and we can find the real peace and joy that you offer in the gospel. And we pray that we might do that. We pray that you might do that in our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Particularly for the families of the two Australian women, that they will be comforted in their grieving.